um, our staff, our staff, we, I like to get going right away after a Sunday. Some pastors take that day off, and so we have our staff meetings at 6 a.m. on Monday mornings. Yeah, right, no. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, but a few weeks ago at our staff meeting, in that morning meeting, I came in and was surprised a little bit because they said, let's just do something fun. And someone on our staff, who is all about fun as well, created a, a game called Jeopardy for us, Staff Jeopardy. And so we were playing this game, had categories like growing pains and, and guilty pleasures, which that's, that's an interesting one in the staff. Anyway, pop culture. And there was one called blackmail. And it came up blackmail for 600. And the idea was we had two sides and, and we were trying to figure out who this could be. And it said, who walked around the college campus impressing others with their new leisure suit? <laughs> well, I'm trying to, trying to get a grasp on that because it wasn't a leisure suit. It, you know, I, there were leisure suits going, this will date me a little bit, but leisure suits came into style and I thought that'll be a fad. Truly. And, and so I bought a denim suit. I said, no, my dad, you know, because they're going to send me this college with this new suit. And I got this denim suit. I think I used it for graduation and other things. And so that morning, and so I explained, I said, I think it's me for, you know, the Blackmail 600. And, and they go, right. I said, well, let me just clarify the story. Well, so what happened that day, it was a Sunday morning, and it was, it, it was a time when people used to wear suits to church. Aren't you glad? Well, look at you guys. <laughs> And, and so I, it was Sunday morning, and I was going to go to church to maybe find a church in that, that area. It was a cafeteria. I'm walking to the cafeteria. I've got my tray, and I've got my hand in my pocket, and I'm walking around like this. And there's quite a few people in the cafeteria, some, you know, college kids, some cute girls. I'm walking through, and, and, and everyone's smiling at me. Big smile, like, you know, wow, I felt like a big man on campus kind of thing. You know what I mean? I'm walking along, and I'm walking until a guy who's an upperclassman, I didn't know it all, sitting by himself, calls me over and I didn't want to go kind of at first and so I kind of pull over and he goes your fly is wide open <laughs> sad thing about these pants they, they had one of these but anyway I, it, the barn was you know, the doors were just yeah it was not a good thing you know what my first inclination was besides wanting to hide it was to go home I literally wanted to go home and in fact lived only about 45 minutes away decided I'm going home and I went home. Because home is where you feel secure and safe and loved and when you tell them you walked around with your fly wide open they laugh and hug you. Because home is a place of security. I had a dog who when it would get in trouble you know what to do? Because this seems primal. When it knew it was wrong and it saw me, you know how some dogs, they just like, well, this one, I got a dog now that carries no shame. It is really a bummer. Because she'll do something wrong. She'll, and she's a, you know, golden retriever is kind of like, and she's done something wrong. She still thinks she should be loved. But anyway, this dog would slink back into its kennel. It would go to its home. Life is not meant to be lived isolated and alone. That's not what God intended for you. And you may have not had the best family of origin and upbringing, but one thing I do know is that when God created family and he created this whole sense of, of community, he meant for it be, to be a place where you could be secure and safe, where you'd show up with what's going on in your life, and it could be like home.
And that's why we decided to take this first Sunday to talk about this whole idea of home. And, and our hope and desire is that you would understand, like when you read the uh, front of this weekly and is this home a place where people flourish, especially as a member of a family, that you'll see down below is three things that we kind of a culture that we want created here is this idea that everyone is welcome. Nobody's perfect. I, I told you my story. There's a whole lot more. We're not going to go there. That's for my small group. And anything's possible. The Bible describes the sense of home with all kinds of metaphors and analogies. And, and it talks about being brothers and sisters. In fact, that's what Jesus would talk about. And, and in the early church, one of the highest honors, and so often in some traditions of the day, is to be called brother or sister in a family. It talks about a family. It talks about being chosen, that the Father, God, you didn't just kind of happen he chose you, and many he adopted into his family. And anyone who wants to be adopted can be adopted in his family. In the Old Testament, there was a very common metaphor, and it's the metaphor of a shepherd with its flock. It was used in a, in a number of ways throughout the Old Testament, but there was one particular guy who understood how important this sense of belonging the sense of feeling home was. And, and he chose to write this out, probably when he was later in his years as a king, but I believe he was reflecting on his early years when he was a shepherd, overseeing his father's flock. And that psalm was Psalm 23, and, and, and you, you've probably heard this if you're maybe new to this whole thing in church, or if you're in a place where you've been in church for a while, you, you may have heard it at funerals or in different situations. And some of you have maybe memorized this because it's such an important psalm where it talks about a shepherd caring for you like his own personal lamb. David was probably a young boy, about 16 years of old, and he had the task of caring for his father's flock. And what you need to understand is that he was probably many times caring for them by himself. He was the last born. He was, there were actually seven before him. And when Samuel the prophet came looking for a new king because the king Saul had just kind of blown it and God said, I want you to anoint a new one, he came to Jesse who had these sons and must have been aware of this and God directed him to him. And these sons come before him and they're very, very wise skillful people, these sons of his. And, and he has each of them come before him and Samuel goes, nope, 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 nope. I think that's seven. And he goes, don't you have any others? I think all the brothers are kind of going, well, wait, wait a second. And his dad goes, yeah, I got one more. This guy, David, little guy, David, he's out, you know, probably in his teenage years young. He's out, in the, we'll go get him. He's out, I don't know, we'll, I think he's out in this field. They bring David before him and Samuel goes, he's the guy. He's the one. And this eighth one, which is interesting in the Bible, this little tidbit, eight often remembers, is this idea of newness. This eighth son comes and establishes a new kingdom upon which the kingdom of God is built and revealed eventually in Jesus. So David, this least and last, assigned to uh, care for the family's flock. Imagine late one night, bored to tears, thinking about life, looking at this flock, 
staring up in the heavens, seeing the stars, thinks, God, oh God, you, uh, you are like a shepherd to me and to my family and to the tribe I'm a part of and a part of the people that I belong to. And, and man, I, as I think about it, you, you were like that shepherd who took us out of this one flock where we were in bondage out of Egypt. And you, you, you were a shepherd who, who used a guy named Moses, but he, you led us because you were the one who led us with a pillar by fire and a cloud. And, and you led us all the way through this wilderness. And you found pasture and you found water along the way. And all the way you brought us to this land where I'm sitting here today and you're my shepherd you're the great shepherd and I think in his mind he probably began to pen this poem that he wrote out later these words where David reveals that his heart could rest and belong and find a home because for David his home was in the shepherd's heart was in the Father's heart. And I doubt the fears and anxieties that David himself carried as he would go through the wilds of that land and arid areas where he'd be looking for water and they would be looking for pasture. I doubt his fears and anxieties are probably much different than what we carry today. David faced the threat of no green pastures. He was looking for a place to feed his sheep. He lived with anxiety of losing one of those lambs and letting down his family because that was... That was money in the bank. And David lived constantly with the threat of death. I mean real death. Because there were wild animals out there and he was called to give and protect the, the lamb. He would put his body and his life between that and a lamb. When he brought lunch to his brothers one day who were there conscripted to serve in the army because there was this Philistine army that was coming against them and they had settled it to a point that there would be one person would fight another person and they had chosen their person. It was a guy named Goliath, a giant of a man, huge, who would stand out there and he would, he would shout out a challenge and he would insult them and say, come on and fight me. It's kind of the, 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 the winner takes all kind of bet. If they win, they get this land that they were contesting and fighting over, which they would often do in those rural societies. They would contest about where the borders would be, and, and they wanted more land because they needed more land, and so they would stand there, and here David comes carrying a lunch, and he's got this lunch, and he sees this giant of a guy named Goliath stand out there and despise the people of Israel. And it says in the Word of God in 1 Samuel, when the Israelites saw the man, we're talking this giant Goliath, they all ran from him in great fear. Not just afraid, really scared to death. That kind of fear. Today we live in one of those times of great fear. I mean, you see what's happening in our nation and people and it's just a division that's occurring. And, and I, I heard a news report the other day that people who listen to the news in the morning end up fighting depression throughout the day. So here's the advice. Don't listen to the news. More than any time in recent history, we are off the charts with people who are paralyzed by anxiety. People anxious and living lonely lives. More than any time in recent history, there are staggering statistics of loneliness and fear. 
Do you know that um, the age groups from about 16 to 25 are carrying, according to statistics, greater fear and anxiety and senses of loneliness and depression than ever? It used to be an age group, they said, from about 80 on up or 85, that, had the, that was shifted down. I shared a few weeks ago this, and I think it bears repeating, loneliness, this whole idea of anxiety and fear, has reached such epidemic proportions in the United Kingdom that Prime Minister Theresa May has literally appointed a minister for loneliness in the cabinet in the United Kingdom. In Japan, lonely deaths, this anxiety and fear among elderly are frequent enough that they've actually coined a word for it called kodakushi. I gotta brush up my Spanish, sorry. I mean, my Japanese. Kodakushi, and, and it gained widespread attention a number of years ago when a man, seven years old, died and his body wasn't discovered until he had been dead for three years. His apartment rent was just being deducted from his bank account. And it wasn't until the bank account ran dry that the bank sent people to find his body. And it's so common now in Japan that they've actually coined a term for this. In her own country, the former U.S. Surgeon General wrote an article and it was published in a Harvard Business Review called Work and the Loneliness of the Epidemic. And he writes that the most common pathology that he saw as a doctor was not heart disease, diabetes, or cancer, but it was loneliness, fear, and this anxiety that people were carrying. And he says that it has been more than doubled since the 1980s. Well, over 40% of Americans report they suffer from this. More than ever, people live apart from family, apart from friends, and apart from a sense of home and belonging, safety, and security. So that when they do something stupid, or they don't feel they're measuring up, or they feel like they failed, or they're afraid they're just not going to continue to be able to keep up the finances or whatever it is, even though they go home, they live alone. The Surgeon General writes in this article, this whole idea of fear, anxiety, and loneliness can be fatal. It can be worse, listen to this, it can be worse than smoking 15 cigarettes per day. It crushes the soul. And I know I'm not speaking to a couple people here. Because they said when they did these reports, 40% was the number but they figure that there's another 20 plus more percent that just won't be honest or don't even understand the feelings that they're feeling. And so I think I'm probably speaking to maybe six to seven out of 10 of you here. Well, let's go. His brothers are, you know, back to the story of, of David and he's standing there and he makes this claim and his brothers begin to ridicule him you can actually see it in the text of 1 Samuel 17. They begin to ridicule him, like, show off. Here it is. You know how the baby brother is. Yeah, here he is again, showing up, got lunch. Because David makes these claims. He goes, hey, listen, guys. I'll take this big guy on. And they're thinking, What? And at one point, he's brought before the king, and, and everyone's been opposing him. And he, listen to what David says. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the lamb from the flock, I went after it, rescued the lamb from its mouth. 
And when it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed lion and bear. This pagan Philistine monster of a guy, he'll be like one of them. Well, they send him to King Saul, and Saul makes arrangements and, and gets this equipment, military equipment. He decides, okay, we'll send this man or boy out to face this giant. And so they put him on, they put this equipment, a coat of armor, a bronze helmet, bronze. Think of a helmet on this kid. And they give him this big sword, and you get this picture. I can't remember if it's Veggie Tales or some other little cartoon where you see him just walking around, and he can hardly walk. He's just not used to this equipment. And he goes, I can't go in this. And he says, I'm just going to go in the sense and the power of God and the way I have been. And he, he has his own little weapon. He has a shepherd's pouch where he kept some stones. And he has a sling and he has a staff. And he goes, I'll go against him with this. And I think everyone's thinking, well, no one else is going to fight this guy. And you read the story and David goes. And I was in Israel and they said this was the stream. And I'm going, how in the stream was probably miles over there at one point. But they said this is a stream where David probably picked up five smooth stones. He put them in his pouch and he came up and he stood before Goliath. And Goliath says, what do you think? I am a dog? You send this flea after me? And David stands calmly before him. And I ask myself, what created that calm? What allowed to live for him to live with that kind of composure? What would, what would give him the kind of confidence that he had that you face and I face? You know, all the things that you face. What would give you that kind of confidence? And David's confidence is told to us in Psalm 23. It was in a shepherd who was over the heavens who was a whole lot bigger than Goliath. You ever been in a plane, you look down and you see the little houses that were, you know, things that were, these buildings that were so massive, you look at them, and all of a sudden you'd get a different vantage point. We had an opportunity this spring, we were at a place in, in Austria, and we, we were looking at this in this mountain, this huge castle, and we looked at it, and then we went to this other peak and looked down, and it looked so dingy, so little. Because David looked through the eyes of God and saw his life through the eyes of God and through the love of God and through the care of God. So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to read together Psalm 23. David alone on the side of a hill looking at the flock, then looking up probably at the sky, thinking of his heavenly shepherd, Father. In his mind is penning these words and eventually pens them and says, let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the great shepherd. And you care intimately for each one of us. 
We thank you for your son Jesus and the way you made that evident. That he would put his life between us and our sin on a cross that we might have life forever. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, do you want the good news or bad news? <laughs> bad news is I'm going on. Good news is I think there's some good stuff. David writes the psalm and each line is an antidote. Each line is an antidote rule that, that, that gives you the ability to live in the face of fear and worry and to live with confidence. To begin to build into your life calm. It doesn't happen immediately. It happens in a life of being under the care of a shepherd. So in the coming weeks, we're going to look at this and we're going to talk about living without fear. How do you live this life in such a way that you're controlled by the calm peace and by the presence of God rather than living and being shaped by the world around you that you will experience and oppress on, on you through newscasts, through people who are hurrying and, and they are wrapped with worry and fear. He wrote these words and lived this life understanding that his heart was hemmed in by God the Father. When I was doing this study, and I didn't read this in any commentaries, it was as I was just meditating and praying on these words. I just got this picture that I think David intended. I'm not saying in other commentaries, others, and you may have heard this before, but I didn't realize this before. This psalm is written in a way that it, it, it talks about God being above and before and, and God being beside you, below you, and behind you, and, and then blessing you. That's the way it's called. And so if you get to know this psalm, it's this idea of this God whose presence, actual, real presence, is just all around you if you can see it and you can believe it and you open your heart to it. Because verse 1 says, God the shepherd is above you, always providing for all that you do not have lack. And then you read verses 2 and 3 and you see these words of leading and guiding because God is a great shepherd who's always before you. He's ahead of you. And you go to verse 4. God the shepherd is beside you always, even in the darkest valley. Even in that valley and every emotion is saying you should be just just filled with fear and you, you will feel fear and you'll experience that and you'll feel the anxiety and you'll feel those things. But he says for you are with me. And then in verse 5, God the shepherd is, is in a sense beneath you always, supporting you against your enemies. You, you actually set a table in the presence of them. You feed me and you, you, you fill me in the midst of this. And, and then he has this really wonderful ending where you see God the shepherd is not only over you, above you, and, 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 and before you, and, and beside you, and, and, and below you, but you always want someone to have your back, Right? And he says, God, his shepherd is behind him, following him with what? Goodness and mercy. Every step of his journey. Because a good shepherd loves him and he surrounds him and blesses him. And here's the deal. When we're in fear and we're alone and we feel this sense of, of anxiety, and honestly, guys, I am processing this all myself, so I'm right with you, and, and some of you are far ahead of me. There are some of you who are living this out better than I am, and there are some of you who are going, I'd like to even get an understanding of what this is like. You may be here for the first time and going, Go ahead. I, this resonates, I, I want to know this. 
because God is for you. And here's what it is. We don't have a right picture of the God of the universe. He does not hate you. He is not trying to make your life miserable. He's not waiting for you to blow it so that he can come behind you and just whack you. He is so much for you. He loves you. And he wants your best. He wants to follow after you with goodness and and supply you, listen to the word, mercy, because he knows you're going to stumble. He wants to be there to hold you up when you start to fall. He wants to be there when you do fall. Yet he won't force himself on you. He always comes with an invitation. And he so deeply respects our will. He created us in his image, and one of those things is his will. Our will is similar in that we can choose to say, I don't want you in my life. And so you you can actually say, I I, I realize that you can provide everything, but you know what? It all falls on me anyway. This whole West Metro area is really leadership um, rich with regard to resources, right? We live with this kind of self-reliant model that, you know, you know, God, I'll I'll take it. He's not saying that you don't do your part. He's saying, would you invite me in and let me walk with you, join with you? And that means you have to kind of bend your knee which is another hard thing to do. And if you're going to have him before you, it means you're going to have to say, God, I, I, I wanna, I'm going to take initiative, I'm going to lead, but I want you to be the first to give me direction on how to go and where to go and what this looks like. And he does give us all kinds of direction in his word. There are so many things in his word. You don't have to search for his will. His will is really made plain at times in the way that we're called to live. And if you're going to have him before you, then you're going to need him at times because you will go through dark valleys. All of us will experience them of the valleys of life. And in those moments when we feel like everything is taken from us and and we feel fear, he says, I just am calling you to trust because you know you're over me and you've submitted and bent your knee and you're asking me to lead you. You can know this, that in the process of leading, I will stand right with you in it. And he says, I'll support you in the presence of your enemies, but here's what you need to do. You need to get away from your reactive tendencies. I want to teach you the kind of things that you need to eat, how you, the ways you need to respond. I'll teach you how to live in the presence of your enemies in such a way that people will be going, wow. People at work are going to go, that guy's a little different. She's really calm. And then he says... And you want me to follow behind you if you want me to do that, then it means you just got to submit your life to me. Take your will and say, God, here's my will. I give it to you. I want you to walk behind me, to be beside me and behind me with goodness and mercy. And I want you to consider that. I want you to think deeply about that and say, God, is this what I want? It's really a simple question. Do you believe that God can be trusted with your life? Do you believe that God can be trusted with your heart? Do you believe that his heart could be your home? Or is your heart in your finances? Or maybe it's in, in doing all you can to make sure that your children are going to be just the way they should be. Or your heart is in your career. If I just make the right step and I make the right moves, if I can manipulate this this way, I'll get here. Or maybe your heart is in whatever that next critical decision is. And God's saying, no, I want you to put your heart in me. I'll help you. I'll guide you. It doesn't mean you don't make decisions. It means you still use your will, but together with my will, there is no greater will on earth. Now, here's the one thing um, that David learned as he watched the sheep. 
And this is really critical. It's a very personal psalm, but there's one thing that, you, that, that it gets overlooked. Shepherds watch over a flock. Okay? It's a very important thing. David knew it. He, he was well aware of the fact that you just don't want sheep scattered too far from your presence because if they are, they could be too far as an outlier and be in danger. Good shepherd knew the value of keeping the flock together. So when the flock was moving, he would, he would be there leading them and times coming behind them because he knew that he had to keep them from getting separated. Because if you, if you just watch it, the problem comes when the flock gets too separated because then what happens is the weak one or the one that's falling behind and, and the lonely one puts himself in a position where the predator can come after them as prey. Anybody watch National Geographic? You know, something like that where you watch it and you see the predators and you see how they kind of, you know how they kind of, that's the picture. I know, whether you believe there's a Satan or not and, and, and his underlings and demonic spirits and, and whether you don't even have to, the world itself can be like this. You're, you're, you're out there and you're alone and, you're, and that predator is just waiting for you to be isolated enough, removed enough that he can attack. That's what he loves to do. The more lonely you become, the more you act in fear, the more you come in worry, and you are, you're not in a place where you're, you're in a flock in this sense. You put yourself at danger. And, and so if you ever watch one of those National Geographics, what's kind of interesting is that one does, you know, like the, the baby, the younger one starts getting attacked. You know what happens? You know, the flock circles around. Well, sheep don't because they're too dumb. But anyway, <laughs> the herd of gazelles, they circle around. The gang of water buffaloes. The parade of elephants. Even elephants that can attack. The zeal of zebras. Purposely will make a circle around the victim when they are threatened by a coalition of cheetahs. Or a cackle of hyenas. Or a parade of lions. Should I go on? These are all names I looked up. I couldn't believe. A zeal of zebras. They get very zealous and come and make a circle and they go, you're not going to take our little one. And that's what God intended. And when Jesus gave his life and, and, and on a cross, it was, it was to be able to put you in a relationship with God. But he didn't just come to put you in a relationship with God, the shepherd who cares for your soul, because he will do that. The whole game really is about not only being in a relationship with a shepherd, but it's being in relationship with other sheep. It's being in the flock. It's critical. These... Loving God and loving others is critical. I can't say this strongly enough. It is critical to fight the prey that comes against you as a predator of loneliness and fear and worry that you carry alone that can destroy you. Because you get isolated and watch out. When it comes to things like shame, it's so counterintuitive. You think shame is kind of like cover up, hide, protect yourself. All the things that go on in your head is protect your image. Don't let yourself become vulnerable. You'll get hurt. Look successful. Appear confident. And you die inside. Because we feel shame around our failures. Everyone does. Our weaknesses, our addictions. We feel shame because we're not smart enough or talented enough or pretty enough or athletic enough. Or we just don't measure up. When I was putting those words together, I had this picture of a SNL skit when Michael Jordan... Well, anyway, some of you may remember him not being pretty enough, smart enough, all this. And, and he thought, you know, self-esteem. It's not self-esteem. It's the flock under the shepherd. 
clock, families and groups circle around so you don't have to be alone, isolated and hidden in your shame. And so we talk about everyone welcome. Nobody's perfect here. Anything's possible. And Jesus, the good shepherd, knew this as well. He chose 12. He told those 12, I want you to go out and I want you to form. He used the word church at a point in Matthew. We'd never used it before. It just meant assembly. It really was the kind of thing that when they would send a group of people into a new area, Rome would just begin to kind of settle that area. They'd send out this assembly, this group. And this group would go out there. They would stay together because they would be bringing the culture of this, this kingdom there. And he, he was looking at them and he said, I want you to do this. I want you to go about, I want you to get these little groups together all over the place where you are formed together, that you're under my care and you're under the care of one another and I want you to go out and just start lots of them all around the world because the whole world needs this. And this was God's strategy to get people together where they would be authentic and vulnerable and live transparent lives under the shepherd as little flocks. I heard a story recently about a woman who was checking in on a new friend. And so she called up to see how she was doing. Terrible came the reply. My head's splitting, my back is aching, my house is a mess, the kids are driving me crazy, I feel so alone. And so very sympathetically, the caller said, listen, you go lie down and rest. I'm going to come right over and I'll cook lunch, clean up the house, take care of the kids so you can get some rest. And by the way, she said, how is your husband, Sam? Sam, woman, said, my husband's name isn't Sam. The caller goes, oh dear, I must have called the wrong number, said it out loud. Long pause. Person on the other side of the line, does this mean you're not coming over? <laughs> Here's what, what has not changed in our world. The burden of finances, the concerns of family and parenting, the fears of our health, the pressures of work, the worry of failure, the pain of loss, all those things have not changed. They've been around for a hundred years, but I think what's changed, folks, is we're asking the question, is anybody coming over? Is anybody close enough? Are you in a flock? What's changed is that we live in a world where we're more isolated than ever. We hide our shame, we believe the lie of self-reliance, and we do pace at, at a level that is killing us. And people are moving away from homes, and they're moving away from the places they grew where they had those kind of communities for, for things like job opportunities and finances and, and maybe a warmer place or a better place to live. Or obviously not here for a warmer place to live, but... So as a church, here's, I'm just gonna, we're going to end it here, okay? So as a church, we believe that one of the best and simplest strategies for facing this that's occurring, we're going to preach and teach about, we're going to talk about the shepherd, but one of the best and, 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 and I think most useful strategies for combating this, and we've been talking about this as staff, we've, we've kind of leaning into it as elders, is, is developing small groups where people can get to know one another, live life, be authentic, be real. And it's going to take your part in your effort to open up your heart to someone. And it's going to take this group, when you're in a group, to be safe and secure in a place where people's hearts can find home, not only in God, but in one another. So as a church, we're going to combat this by hearing teaching over the next few weeks about living under the care of a shepherd, but we're also going to combat it by, by trying to get people in these little flocks, these little places, and where, where you are in these smaller communities where you can be known and where you can belong and where you can become. And like you said here, when they saw one another, they see each other, 
and they know in a sense what's going on in their lives. And even though they may not be in a small group anymore, they know when they see they've got someone, they belong to someone. And you can't do this in a group this size. Worship is really important. It's a priority to come together to worship God, to hear God, to, to hear his word spoken and to, to, to read his word together is so critical. But just as critical as you see it throughout the whole New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament with these tribes, clans, these smaller groups, these families that came together in homes. So I want to encourage each and every one of you to consider this year to get into some kind of small group, whether it be in a couples group or it be in a group with guys or a group with girls. Or, or, or We're doing it with kids. We're doing it with our young adults. We're doing it in all places. We're, we're asking people to come together. And maybe, and maybe we can be a larger family in this area in the West Metro that actually serves this area by coming together in these smaller groups to offer an alternative that might be attractive to people who don't have that experience. I've been in a couples group with my wife and they've been incredible. Um, they can be kind of bland if, you don't, if, you, if someone doesn't take the first step and say, there's, you know, there's, our marriage isn't quite the way it should be or, or here's what we're struggling with. I mean, someone has to get real. And I can tell you, when you get into those kind of places with couples, you, you actually learn from another in the Holy Spirit and through his word. It's just incredible. And then there's groups with, with guys, for me. I haven't been in any women's groups lately. But, um, <laughs> but in guys' groups. And I've had those experiences where you just kind of, you become close and you become committed to one another and to your spiritual health and growth. And, I'm going to end this by sharing with you a video of guys who have become like brothers to me. Literally, I'm kind of like the father of the sons. But anyway...